So we're going to be in Luke chapter 21 today. It's an interesting passage we're going to be dealing with. I'd encourage you to turn there in a Bible. We're actually going to be flipping around a little bit. We've got a short passage to study, but we need, a, we need to do some context work. And so I would encourage you to get there in a Bible. If you want to use the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, it's on page 880. Uh, while we're kind of getting set up, I would encourage you to go ahead and find Matthew chapter 23. Um, we're going to be working from... Uh, uh, that's just part of the con- context that I, that I want you to see. If you're using the Bibles in the chairs, that's on page 828, just to make that easy. So it, it's, it's, this, this passage is interesting. On the surface, it appears to be one thing. In fact, I think when I read it, you're going to begin to automatically process it in, in a certain way. Uh, maybe that's due to the way you've been conditioned or you've just heard it preached before or something like that. But But what it appears to be on the surface, I don't think is exactly or actually what... It is. And so rather than trying to set this up with an introduction or, you know, typically I'll come out here with a question or introduce the passage and try and just warm you up a little bit to the topic. I'm not going to do that today. We're just going to dig right into the passage and then we'll get to that place after you kind of see how the context breaks out. So let's read the passage, Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, uh, and then we'll... uh, Then we'll just begin to work through it. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And I think if I took a poll right now, if 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 I just... Pulled the congregation here. I think most of us would agree that Jesus is teaching his disciples something about money. He's giving a lesson about money. Maybe if you maybe you've heard this text preached before, and that was the that was the application. That's kind of the universal application that's brought out. Maybe maybe that's what you've been conditioned to hear in the church. I, I don't know. Well, while the widow's use of money is is what Jesus points out, and it is kind of his focus. If we stop at money, I, I think that, that we miss the broader point, the bigger, the bigger picture that he's painting here. In, in the interest of transparency, just so that you know, not everyone agrees with what I'm going to teach today. In fact, there's really three views, and I'm going to kind of walk through those three views so that you get an idea. I, I hope to help you think through the passage, not just believe what I believe. Uh, at the end of it all, if you don't want to agree, with, I don't mind if you're wrong if you don't agree with me. I don't, I don't care one bit. About that, uh, but I want you to be able to think through it and and think on it on your on, on your own. So so that was what we're going to do. That's why we need to just just start the way we're starting. So view one is it's all about the money. Everything that Jesus is saying here is all about the money. Like he is going after uh, he he is teaching a a, um, a a lesson specifically about how. Christians or God's people should use their money. It's, 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 that's, that's the first perspective. Now they draw principles, the people who hold this view draw principles from it that, that teach about what a gift is or what an honorable gift is and, and what isn't an honorable gift. And in fact, one commentary I read kind of summarized four general perspectives or four general views that are drawn out of this, out of this view that it's all about the money. The first is the measure of one's gift does not involve how much one gives. The measure of one's gift does not involve how much one gives, but how much remains or how much one keeps. So the measure of your gift isn't how much the amount is on the check, let's say, but how much is left in the account, how much you keep after you give your gift. 
Next, a gift is measured by the spirit in which it is given. A gift is measured by the spirit in which it is given. If you don't have a right heart, if you're not a cheerful giver, God can't possibly use that gift. He, he, he won't possibly accept that gift. He, it's not an honorable gift. Unless, so, so unless you're really cheerful about tithing, don't ever tithe. That's the idea, right? That's the perspective. That's the, the idea they would draw out of it. One's giving should be commiserate with one's means. So if you make a lot, you give a lot. If you make a little, you give a little. It all balances out in the wash. In God's economy, it's balanced. And then finally, true giving involves giving all one has. True giving involves all one has. You haven't really given unless you've given 100%. Because at the end of this, he says she gave it all. Everything she had to live on. That's the idea. And, and, and the people that use this uh, in, in this way, the, to really make this speak only about money, use it in manipulative ways. They, they stand on televisions and in front of uh, cheesy uh, uh, sets and, and manipulate people to give their last dollar with the promise that this, this planting a seed, a seed offering will return in some way tenfold you know so if you give us your seed offering well then you'll get this back and so the idea is is your investment will pay you back and it's always this prosperity mentality that you're going to get rich by giving and and it's unfortunate it's an unfortunate reality that they would twist and manipulate the scriptures this way i i i personally don't i don't know i'm not, i don't know if it's clear but i don't necessarily fall in line with that view um so so that's the first view it's all about the money and then, as I read and studied this week, there's, there's, there came out this second view. Is it's, it's not about the money at all. The second view is it's not about the money at all. It's got nothing to do with money. They say it has absolutely nothing to do with giving, and we shouldn't draw any application from it having to do with giving or finances in any way. They would, they would say that to make this text about money would deny the whole context of the Bible and its teaching on money and that the only right conclusion you could draw from it, if Jesus is teaching a lesson about money, that the only conclusion you could draw is that he doesn't intend to provide you money that you can live on. He intends to provide you money that you're to give away and you're to be destitute. There's this pop, pop. Uh, uh, poverty gospel in mind, if you will, that we, it, it's a sin all of a sudden if you got something in a bank account. That, and, and so their idea here is that that, that, that that just can't be right. And they build this argument from, from the context that both is immediately referenced in the scripture and then that is surrounding these four verses. And so that's why I want you to be able to see the context. First, we're going we're gonna to talk about the, what's immediately in the text. From the passage itself, they would point out these things. In these verses, Jesus does not directly condemn the giving of the rich or commend the giving of the widow. Look, at, he doesn't say anything bad about their gifts. The, the giving of the rich people's gifts, the large gifts. that He, he doesn't say anything bad. We have to infer that based on our own preconceived ideas he doesn't say anything positive or or affirming of the widow's gift at all he just happens to say that hers is larger in contrast to the rich people's even though it was smaller in monetary value it was larger because she had less so he's not directly commending her gift or directly condemning the gift of the rich. Jesus doesn't say that the widow's gift is given in genuine love and devotion toward God. 
There's a lot of people who give everything to false gods every day. He doesn't tell us what her motive is. He just happens to point out that she gave her all to whatever it is she was giving it to. So we don't know that her attitude is is one of gratefulness or faith in God. We don't know that her love and devotion and worship in giving is toward God. We don't have any idea or any certainty that that's the case. We just know what she did. He gives us no indication of, of why she did it. In fact, they would suggest as well that by drawing a contrast between the giving of the rich widow, the rich and this widow, Jesus is not commending the widow, but lamenting the weight of the religious system that the widow lived under. She's giving this much because she's been manipulated and oppressed and abused by the religious leaders of her day. And he's not commending her gift. He's lamenting the fact that she would even feel the need to give it. Now, I don't know if all three of those are exactly right. Not everybody would agree on that third one, especially. I think the language kind of speaks against it. But, but I do think that there's something to be said for what's going on here. We have to infer an awful lot if, if we're going to make this about all about the money. We have to draw an awful lot in. We have to ignore a lot of the text. And not only do we have to ignore some of the things that are going on in the text and draw things into the text if we're going to make it about money, we have to ignore what's going on before it and after it. And look, look, look at the passage just before this passage. Luke 21, verse 1 through 4. Look at the passage just preceding it. In Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through through. Um, 47, specifically in 46 through 47, Jesus says this, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long, and and for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. See, Jesus is saying these, these leaders, these scribes, these ones who would be called teacher, these ones who have authority because they take the scripture and teach them and lord them over you, he says they're arrogant, they're hypocrites, and they prey on widows. Rather than serve the poor and the less fortunate, they feed off of them. But Luke really just gives us a snippet of what Jesus has to say. This is, this is just a, a synopsis, if you will. Flip over to Matthew chapter 23. It's the same exact set of circumstances. Jesus has just used the passage in Psalms 110 where he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your, feet, put your enemies under your feet. If Then David calls him Lord, how is he son? And, and no one's able to answer him a word. Not from, any, not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is Jesus being challenged in the temple by the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. This is what's happening. That's the current set of circumstances in Matthew as you read this passage. It's the very exact same circumstances that Luke is telling us this passage from. It's the same circumstances in which Jesus is sitting down to look at the the treasury and he sees the widow giving. But look at what Matthew records about what Jesus says in response to to their actions. 
Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 23, Matthew 23, he says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They're hypocrites. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They oppress people and lay burdens and rules and laws and expectations on people, but they don't do them themselves. They don't, they don't walk in them themselves. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They're arrogant hypocrites. For they make their phylacteries broad. Phylacteries are little boxes that they would tie to their foreheads and to their wrists. And they would write scriptures in them. They make them broad. They make them very prominent so that they stand out is his point. He says they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. You see, this is, this is the same exact thing that's being said in Luke 21. But we're getting a greater, broader, more full picture. Greetings in the marketplace and, 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 and they love being called rabbi by others. But he doesn't stop there. Like that's not the end of what he has to say to them. Skip down to verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Verse 16, woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. What do you think they're prioritizing there? What do you think their highest regard is toward? The gold, not the temple, not the not the house of God. Look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the way to your matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we should not have taken part with them. We would not uh, have taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. We wouldn't have done what they did. We're better than they are. It's no wonder that these guys wanted to kill Jesus, right? Over and over and over, he shows them the reasons for the judgment that's coming upon them. He has totally discredited them in front of the people. He has totally demonstrated, he has clearly demonstrated that they are not what they appear to be, that they are arrogant, hypocritical, preying on the, 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 the lives of, of the poor and the needy. He shows them clearly that they deserve what they are going to get. The beginning of this passage, all and, and, and so just, just get the picture of this. Just see the picture of this. Before Jesus walks over and sits down in front of the treasury and begins to watch people give their offerings, he's standing in the temple courts preaching the gospel and proclaiming judgment against the leaders of the temple. And then he walks over 
And he sits down. We know he sits down in Mark. It tells us the same account. Mark tells us he sits down and he begins to watch. And he illustrates what he's just taught by what he sees happening as they give their gifts. But it isn't just the preceding context. It isn't the context that just precedes this passage that leads us to, leads us to, leads us to believe that this would be uh, less about money and more about the judgment that's coming, an illustration, a further illustration, a practical application, a real-world example of this hypocrisy and feeding on the lives and, uh, of widows. It's not just the text before it that shows that. It's the text that follows it immediately after. I can do this just really easily. Flip back over to Luke chapter 21. And if you happen to be reading in the ESV, you'll see the same headings that I'm about to read to you. The very, the, the, we won't read the verses. I'll just let me read the headings. These aren't scripture. This is the, the, the translators have put it in there for us. But they summarize what's inside of each section. The very first one in, in Luke chapter 21 verse 5. Jesus foretells destruction, the destruction of the temple. He's about to tear that sucker to the ground. Judgment is coming. Jesus, the next one in verse 10, Jesus foretells wars and persecution. Judgment is coming. There's nothing that can stop it. Trial and tribulation and difficulty is coming. And then finally, in verse 20, he says, it tells us that there's the summary of that passage as Jesus foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. Not only is the temple going to be destroyed, but Jerusalem is going to lose its standing in front of the world. Destruction of Jerusalem is on its way because of their hypocrisy and their arrogance, because of the preying on, on, on widows of the, the leadership. It would seem really weird if Jesus stopped in the middle of all this judgment to tell us how we should be spending our money. It seems that Jesus took the opportunity not to teach his disciples about money, but instead to show them about the arrogance, the hypocrisy, and the devouring of widows' houses, how it played out in a very practical way right here in his temple. The place where he had said himself and the scripture says and, and testifies that it's to be a house of prayer. It's to be a place for the nations to come and interact with the God of the heavens. And yet right here, happening right here in the temple, even after he has pushed out all the money changers and the, and the marketers, even after he's, all the merchants, he's, even after he's driven them out and he stood there day after day, preaching and teaching the gospel, they're still doing it. See, ultimately, Jesus is not just demonstrating the judgment that's coming, but, but why the judgment is coming. Why the leaders of Israel, the leaders in Jerusalem, why they're going to face the greatest of all condemnations. Because with full knowledge, they know what they're doing. So the first group makes it all about the money. The second group tends to run to the other end of the spectrum and says this has nothing to do with the money. It's all about the judgment. But there's a third group. Can you guess what view it is? It's both. It's both. It's all about, really, it's, 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 it's not an either or. It's, it's a both and. And I would summarize this group this way. 
View three, the third view, is it's all about the truth the money tells. It's all about the truth money tells. See, rather than it being all about money or having nothing to do with money, this third view recognizes both. And just again, in the interest of transparency, this is where I fall out. This is, as I've read and studied and, and looked at everything and, and heard the different arguments, and I, this is where I, I fall out. Now, I know that Jesus isn't giving us a, a, a life plan or a very practical teaching on how you're supposed to set up your tithes and offerings inside your budget. He's not laying out a financial peace university and, and establishing Dave Ramsey's financial plan to, to Christian wealth. I don't know if that's how he says it or not. I, that's probably, a, I don't know. He's not doing that. It's not happening. He doesn't give us enough information here. He didn't point this out to his disciples so that they could then turn around and begin to manipulate those who would come after them and say, you must give us 100% of everything you own. You must walk around poor. Jesus doesn't love rich people. He doesn't say that. Jesus didn't highlight the great, he, he didn't highlight the great sacrifice of the widow so that prosperity teachers could manipulate other widows or other people living on, on, on uh, little, saying, if you just give us that last, if you're just hanging on to that retirement check, don't be too selfish. I really, I've got another jet I have to buy. But if you help me buy my jet, God will pay you back. I agree with the second group of people that the context demonstrates that Jesus' use of this money is more a means to an end. It's more of a purpose to illustrate the corruption in Jerusalem than it is to show us how to use and how to spend money. But I think the second group gets it wrong when they run so far that they miss the very thing he uses to make his point. The money that these people were using, the money, the, the ways it was being received was speaking a truth about them. It was saying something about the people who were giving it. It was revealing something that they thought they were covering up. See, Jesus makes his point by, by contrasting one small gift in monetary value by the widow against very large gifts of, of much greater monetary value by the rich. On the one hand, he's highlighting the arrogance and the hypocrisy of the rich, the failure of the religious systems to do what they were intended to do, while at the same time, he, he demonstrates that he values a gift not based on the market value, but rather on the value it has to the one who gave it. So I think we'd be wrong to totally dismiss that there's some underlying realities that we must see and must understand. But it's, it's again, it's, it's dismissing the context, the larger, broader context of all that he's been teaching his disciples all along. He had lots to say about money. He had lots of things to teach them about money. Store up in heaven, store up in heaven your treasures where moth and rust do not destroy. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He had lots of things. He had a view of money. He had strong opinions of money. I think it would be dismissing the broader context of all that Jesus had taught his disciples if we don't listen to what he's saying, both in the context of the primary point and the, and the thing that he uses to make the point. See, he made his point by letting the money tell the story, by letting the money speak the truth about what these people, what was at the bottom these people's hearts and it reveals why 
Jerusalem and its leaders would be judged. So this is where it gets practical, where it really enables us to kind of step in. What's the truth your money tells about you? What does it reveal about you? See, in the same way that money told a truth about them, it's still speaking truth today. Jesus isn't condemning the having of money. He's not commending the release of all money. He's demonstrating that the way these people use it says something about them. It reveals a truth about them. He's not commending a prosperity gospel that if you give, you'll get a lot in return. And he's not commending a poverty gospel in which if you give it all away, you're you're greatest in the kingdom. He's just letting us see that our money says something about us. In fact, money by itself is really morally neutral. But what it reveals about our hearts is a really moral truth. And so just as I thought about this passage and some of the things I think that it reveals, I, 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 there's four questions I just want to ask you. I want you to consider. What is the truth your money tells about you? Does your money reveal your integrity or hypocrisy? In, in this passage, the hypocrisy, the religious elites, the rich, it's in full view. I mean, you can see it. The context builds it out for us. The context shows us that this is a passage of judgment that, that it just heaps greater judgment on the leaders of Jerusalem, on Jerusalem itself. Scholars tell us that, that there were 13 receptacles inside the treasury. There were horn-shaped boxes, and so horn-shaped receptacles. And so they'd come by the treasury, and they'd drop their offerings into these different boxes, and they each had a name, and, and it would tell them where those offerings or where those gifts would go to. And you can almost imagine it. You can almost see it as people walk by, making sure that they stop and they make a show out of each one that they stop and they drop their offering in and they go to the very next one and they drop their offering in so that, so that the rich, by the time they're done, they've given a lot across these 13 offering boxes. You can imagine the spectacle as people stood around and saw everyone that's giving in all of these boxes. And then there's this little widow that walks up. She's got two little copper coins the, the, the amount, the de- it would have been like, I, I forget the valuations that I read. There was a, several, but it, it would have amounted to about one five hundredth. One five hundredth of a daily wage. Was, I'm, wrap your mind around that. What do you make divided by 500? And that's the equivalent, kind of the equivalent that they would have expected these two little copper coins to count. She can't spread them across 13 boxes. They likely don't make any noise when they fall in. Who do you think would have been getting the pats on the back and the, and the appreciation and the, and the head nods? Good job. None of them would have even noticed the widow. But Jesus tells us that it shows us something about them. Because they were giving from their abundance. They were doing this as part of the show. 
They weren't, they weren't truly sacrificing for the cause of the temple. They weren't, they weren't truly sacrificing for the advancement of God's glory or the advancement of his kingdom. It was just, just, just like when they, when they wrapped the phylacteries around their foreheads and on their wrists, they would put them on broad. They would, they would put big ones on so that everybody would see them. They would wear long flowing robes. They would make loud greetings in the marketplace. Everything they did was for show. Their tassels were long. They demonstrated everything they could from the outside. That they were holy and righteous and they deserved their place and position. Their, their, their places of honor in the synagogue. This was a show. The widow didn't even have a chance to put on a show. There's nobody nodding ahead at her. Nobody giving her a position. Even if no one was going to notice it, though. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us that her heart is true. But she has integrity for whatever she believes in, for whatever she holds to. Her money has been put where her mouth is. Like, she is serious. But these leaders, it's all a show. And I think there are really two practical, really two practical applications that can be made here. First, and really this could happen across each of the questions I'm going to ask you. I'm not going to do it every time. But first, in relation to the integrity of those who lead. Now, I made this point last week, and I, and I tried to tell you then, I'm not doing this. This is not a silly little trite little illustration. I'm serious about this. I mean this from the depths of my heart. If you see in me, if you see in the pastors of this church arrogance and hypocrisy that feeds on those who should be served, you should flee from us. You should hear Jesus' words to beware of people like that and flee, not come back. Don't be a part of what's going on here if that's what's happening. If you can't see our integrity, then there is no reason for you to follow us. See, there's a reason why Paul pointed out to the elders in the church that, that they pointed out to elders in the church and to the church at large as they establish elders that they shouldn't be these men, these leaders, shouldn't be lovers of money. Peter commended or commanded elders to shepherd the flock, not for selfish gain. We, we look for this integrity in the life of everyone, deacons and elders both. We, we, we won't even consider a person for eldership or serving as a deacon in, in our church if they don't demonstrate integrity, including in their finances, including in the way that they use their money. This question comes up. We're not trying to be jerks about this, but it's too serious to misplace. It's too serious. It's too important. It's too valid to disregard if our integrity doesn't go before us, we give no reason for you to follow us. But let me, let me go a step further than I did last week. If you can see the integrity of your leadership here, then follow us as we follow Christ. Don't resist. Don't make our jobs difficult. Don't make it hard to be men and women who stand by you, caring for your souls, who will give a responsible answer to God how we led you. As we follow Christ, you follow us. 
if you see our integrity. But if you don't, let me, let me give you permission today. Run and find Christian leaders who you can follow as they follow Christ. I would appreciate you at least confront me and let me, let me repent in my failure. It's my desire is for God's glory. This is really meaningless if it's not about his glory. We, we strive to build this in here. And you should be looking for it. You should be expecting it. But it doesn't stop at our integrity. I mean, what's the truth your, your money is telling you about your integrity? Fathers, husbands, as you lead in your homes, how are you prioritizing finances? Parents, as you strive to teach your children what is, the, what is the story? What is the story your money's telling about you? Do the actions of your life match the, the words of your mouth? Do the motivations of your heart match the words and actions that you demonstrate on the outside? Does your money tell a story of integrity? See, the reality is it's all over America. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. All across America today, living under mountains and mountains of debt because they want to have things people have. Because they want to present an image of wealth and prosperity. And there's rich people putting on a show of how great their lives are. But we hear, we, we hear stories all the time of drug addiction and suicide because their money hasn't made them happy. Is your money telling a story of integrity or, or hypocrisy? Second, what's the truth your money tells about you? Does your money tell of your generosity or affirm that you're stingy? So you can almost hear the rich people here talking about how generous they are. Oh, oh man, you, I, I gave I a gave thousand dollars. I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> I have no clue. Just came out, sorry. Aren't I generous? Man, look at me. Look at what I give. I'm so generous. Hey, did you see, did you see how much money, did you hear about that big gift that person gave? That's so amazing, they're so generous. But Jesus' point is these gifts, they weren't really all that generous. They were given out of abundance. They were given out of these large sums of money they already have because they didn't really cost rich anything to give them. Same kind of thing happens today. Our Kent Hughes, actually, in his commentary, asked this question. He says, what would happen to our great national charities today without celebrity benefits or published subscribers or bronze plaques? or pictures of donors holding three-foot-long checks or standing beside crippled children? Uh, what, hap what happens to, to charities and, 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 and generous giving if, if we suddenly take away tax incentives? Like, you can re re reduce your tax burden if you give a large chunk of money away. In fact, you can give, 
If you make enough, you can give just enough that you can kind of break even and not pay that much. But what happens if we take away that tax incentive? What, what happens if they lose, if, if all of a sudden they're just doing it secretly and, and, and all of a sudden nobody is, is out there reporting on, on all these people going to these places and doing these great things? What happens if there's no notoriety in social justice? Do you think it matters to the rich as much? Probably not. In fact, there are statistics that show the, the poorest among us are really the most generous, that they actually give more combined than the rich people give together, or, or any rich person gives. I mean, if they really meant it, like if, if Oprah really felt the way she did about helping people in need, don't you think that she would just live a modern, uh, um, a median lifestyle and give away everything she earns? Does she really need, uh, I, don't, I don't know, does, does she really need the things that she accumulates? I'm not trying to pass judgment. I don't want you to hear that. I want you to hear the question. It's not wrong for her to have that money. But is she really as generous as we might make her out to be? Her favorite things that she gives away, does she really pay for those or does a company want her endorsement so they give her a bunch so that she can give them to her audience? You know, a few years ago, she gave away a bunch of cars. I don't, know, I don't, I don't even know what she does anymore. It's been a long time ago, I guess. So I don't follow Oprah. But... She gave away a bunch of cars and everybody loving on Oprah when it was really Pontiac that took, took the hit. But Oprah got the credit because it happened on her show. You think she cares about that stuff so much if she doesn't get credit? See, I wonder what would happen. I, I, I'm with Arkin Hughes. I wonder what would happen if we, if we quit telling the stories about how great these celebrities are when they start doing these, these starting these foundations and giving away this loads of money. The interesting thing to me is that without saying much of anything about anything, I see people do things that are generous all the time. In fact, I I can't tell you who it is because I've been asked not to. But there's a person that's in our church. This wasn't in my notes, so I'm having to think through it. Sorry. person in my church, or in our church, that the last three, four, three or four trips to Senegal has ensured that somebody's trip has been paid for. And they get no notoriety for that. That sounds generous to me. And these aren't small things to the person that's given them. It's not... Not like they're trying to figure out how to buy a fourth vacation house in the south of France. The truth is, it's not just celebrities that struggle with the questions, right? Christians do it all the time. We give to the gospel mission just enough. Just enough to satisfy us a little bit. Just enough to make us feel good. I think David sets a good precedent in 2 Samuel Chapter 24, you can go back and read it on your own at some point. He's going to build an altar to the Lord, and he, he, he feels compelled to worship. He wants to build an altar to the Lord, and he goes to the owner, and the owner's like, he sees him, he recognizes him, he's like, I know you're King David, let me just give you this field. And, and, and David's like, no, but I, no, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. 
So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. It cost him. He felt that he, he, he recognized that he couldn't offer the Lord something. He couldn't gener- be generous with something if, if it didn't cost him something. C.S. Lewis, talking about charity and, and charitable giving in his book, Mere Christianity, says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. The reality is this, the Lord has been so generous with us. He's just been so generous with us. How in the world could we hold back from Him? Why wouldn't we seek to be generous toward Him and and to His people? Listen, generosity, it's not measured by the size of the gift, uh, but by the sacrifice made when when the gift is given. We can't say that these rich people didn't have some measure of generosity. Their large gifts cost them something. But if a, if a trillionaire gives a million dollars, we will say that's generous. But if someone who has $150 gives $125, who's more generous? It's a smaller gift, but just as useful in the hands of the Lord. And that's most generous. The other side of this is that being stingy is just another way of saying that you're most generous with yourself. Oh, you're generous if you're stingy, but you're generous with yourself. I've got to save everything for me. I've got to get what's mine. And these people, they were giving money as a show. They were spending money buying the perceptions of the people around them. They weren't giving this at all to anyone else. They were giving it to themselves. Because they preferred what it would buy them. And they didn't need to hold on to their money anymore. Because they had so much. Listen. This is a real issue in the church today. Not just ours. It's all over. There's a reason why that that there's a a, a stereotypical quote that 20% of the people give 80% of the money. There's a real reason that that exists because by and large, it is true across, across local congregations everywhere. Because the vast majority of people would prefer to walk into a church and take what they can get and save as much for themselves and go out and, and, and do what they want with it. They come here just like they're going to Walmart to shop for what, not just here, it's churches everywhere. As if they were shopping at Walmart, looking for what is right for them, what's good for them. I don't, I don't follow your donations closely enough. I, I'm, I just don't do that. I don't want to do that. I, I, it's not that I'm afraid of it, it's just I don't. I don't know if that statistic holds true in our church. A few years back when I, I know it was, it was checked on, it, we were just be, a, a bit better than that. But there's a reality that even in this church, a church that's gospel-centric, that seeks to be word-driven, uh, that's uh, built on, founded on the grace and goodness of God and His gospel, and, and now living in light of that, even in a church like this, 
we have people that, that are stingy. They want everything for themselves. And when they do give, it's, it's really for a selfish reason, a selfish purpose. Well, what truth is your money telling about you? Is it revealing the generosity in your heart or the stinginess of your heart? The leadership in Jerusalem, I think, is clear. We don't really know why this woman was giving. But for whatever reason she was giving, for whatever she was giving to, she was generous towards it. What's the truth your money is telling about you? What's the truth your money is telling about you? Third, what's the truth your money is telling about you? Does your money declare your hope that declare your hope is in the eternal or your desire for the present? Does it declare that you hope in eternity or that your desire, your greatest desire is for the present? This is not nearly as clear in the, you have to take the contextual clues in line with it. Look at what this woman is given to. She gave everything she had to live on to something that's about to be torn down. To, to something that's about to be destroyed. To, she's giving all that she has to live on to something that's temporary, that's something that, 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 that Jesus has condemned, that Jesus is bringing judgment on. And we continue to do things like this. We all buy into some religious system and, and spend our money on things that are temporary over the things that are eternal. Jesus said that, that we should store up in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. That Randy Alcorn summarizes it in his book, The Treasure Principle, this way. You can't take it with you. Talking about your money, you can't take it with you. But you can send it on ahead. That we can invest in eternity today. We can invest in, in the life to come today. This is not a condemnation to enjoying and being entertained and finding joy in, in the things that are here and now. This is not a condemnation of that. But it is certainly a call to keep things in the right priority. These Jewish leaders, these, these, these Sadducees, these Pharisees, these scribes, they were so busy building their kingdom and trying to maintain their kingdom that they were no longer seeking to build God's. And as the king, of the, king, uh, the king of the coming kingdom was standing in front of them, they would not submit to him. They could only reject him. If, if you do an honest assessment, what kingdom are you building? What, what, is the, what is the truth your money is telling about the kingdom that you're seeking to build? Is it one that's going to burn up? That's going to be destroyed? Or is it one that's going to last forever? I mean, here's the reality. This is not a, uh, further. It's not a, not a condemnation of giving to things like the church. This is not, Jesus isn't saying he, she shouldn't have given it to them. He's not saying that there shouldn't be offerings given to, to further his kingdom. The people of God had always, have always been responsible to fund his mission. He commanded the Israelites to donate towards the building of his tabernacle. You know where they got the, the stuff he called them to donate? 
When they were leaving Egypt, when they were being called out of Egypt, he influenced the people of Egypt to give them great treasure. They left rich. And he turns around and says, now I've provided, now you donate it back. When the church was founded, it was through the support of new believers like Lydia in the Philippian church that the gospel was advancing. Lydia was wealthy. She was a dealer of purple, purple cloth, purple dye. It was a, it was a, a, a wealthy thing. It was a person of wealth. Paul worked as a tent maker in order to help fund his missionary journeys. God provides all we need to accomplish all that he's called us to accomplish. The question is, where are our priorities? Where the priorities of our hearts lie? What is the truth that our money's telling about what we're committed to most? Are we, are, are we prioritizing our desire for the things of this present kingdom or this present life over the, over the commitment to advancing his eternal kingdom? What's the truth your money's telling you or telling about you? Finally, fourth, what's the truth your money tells about you? Does your money show that your faith is in the Lord or the security a few bucks provide? The widow may have been trusting in a false picture of God based on how she'd been taught by the scribes. She may not have even really known God. She may not have really even known who he was because they weren't teaching her about the true God. But her her gift clearly demonstrates that she trusted whatever she knew about God more than she trusted in the security that her money could offer. As I considered this woman, I I, I thought of two widows. We get to see them when we go back to Tokal. They were married to the same husband. He was killed in a car accident. And because of that, I mean, they're already poor, right? They start off poor. But in in these villages in uh, Senegal... Without a man to provide for them, this is just the way their economy works. Without a man, these widows are destitute, scraping by. These two widows, Fanta and Tutu, when we sat down, when we met them, told us a story. They're, they're Muslim women who had been hearing stories about this from, from Christians coming, telling them stories about this God who provides. And, and Fanta, she, she told the story of, of how one day that she had just, they had just gone through all their food. They had nothing to eat. For they didn't know what was next. Had no rice, had nothing to make with it, didn't have anything. And that morning she went to the well. She was getting water. She was she didn't know what you know when that she was going to cook anything with it. But she was getting water, just part of her daily routine. She shows up at the well. Before she had gone, she prayed that the Lord would provide. She's hearing about this generous God from Christians coming and telling this. These stories about the gospel and how he's provided through Jesus Christ. And she's praying, how would you provide for us? This Muslim woman who, not, who doesn't know the true God, praying to a God she doesn't know, trusting that he'll provide. She shows up at the well, she begins to draw her water, and a man walks up to her, will you draw my water? I'll pay you to draw my water. Her family ate that day because God provided a few days later, again, they're in the same place. This is just where they live. And because they've been friends with Christians now, and because Christians have come in and out of their home, and the village is not supporting them. The, the, Islam, the, the mosque and Islam is not taking care of them. They've written them off. But a few days later, she tells the story of how they had nothing. She went to the market. She sold peanuts that she had harvested. She's able to 
sell those and provide so that her family can eat for another few days. When we were there, you wouldn't have known it. It didn't slow them down in their offering of hospitality. They wanted us to sit down and drink tea with them. They can't even eat, and they're trying to offer some strangers some tea to drink. We go back to where we're staying, and every day we're buying our food there. We're, we're buying and living off the local economy, and we decided that we wanted to buy some of their they were in the garden tending their garden. <clears throat> and we realized we wanted to, that what we wanted to do was, was bless them. And we asked how much they would want for some of their lettuce. And there, she's like a, I don't know, 500 sifa, which amounts to about uh, less than a dollar. And when we gave her uh, I think it was 20,000 Cephas. She about fell over. And I'm not trying to, Honestly, it was nothing. It's for about 40 bucks. We, on a limited budget there, we don't know what we can give away. We know there's lots of need. We don't know what we can give away. We felt really good. We felt right about giving her that $40. For her and her family... That meant months. I'm emotional now, but I can tell you, as we, as we sat there that day, there wasn't a dry eye. I mean, oh, dude, even Darbo, who's, I mean, he's joyful and he laughs a lot, but he doesn't, you don't see him moved. Everyone was bawling. Because of what it meant for this family. You know, the beauty of this whole thing is not that she got $40. But we also saw the Lord transform her heart. She didn't just receive generosity from a bunch of white folks sitting in her compliment. She heard the stories of Jesus Christ and what God did to pay the price for our sin. And she heard the generous offer of salvation forever and ever. And she trusted him that day. And Tutu trusted. And the very next day we see her and she is singing songs that she's making up out of nowhere to a Christ that she has just met because he has provided. Let me tell you. That's what I want to give myself to. That's what I want my money to do in this world. It's not speak highly of me or this church. 
but it would speak to the glory and the goodness and the grace of a God who is paid with his all so that the world may know his generous heart. That we would not be a people who are, who are marked with hypocrisy, that we would not be a people who are stingy, seeking to make everything about ourselves, that we would not be a people who are more committed to life here and now than life then, that we would be a people who are so radically transformed by the gospel of Christ that we give ourselves joyfully to the advancement of his kingdom so that when he returns, people Widows like Fanta and Tutu would join us in singing holy, holy, holy. What's the story your money's telling about you? Does money commend you as one whose life has been radically reoriented around Jesus? Or like these Pharisees, is it condemning you? What's the story it tells Let's pray. Father God, help us now. We need you. Where would we be without you? I pray that you'd move on us, that you'd lead us, your people. That we might give ourselves to you and to you alone. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.